Well, greetings. My name is Chad Lewis. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're continuing our journey through Galatians, and I want you to imagine this scene here. I'm preaching this morning, and the morning has some ups and downs, uh, something about, I don't know what kind of monster would do this, but someone stole coffee filters or something else, and we don't have the coffee that we typically have. Does that apply to anybody? So I, I'm a problem solver, and I say, hey, I, I said, I know ways we can get around this. I've got two socks on right now. We can just, <laughs> but they shoot that down, so I'm offended. Yeah. How am I supposed to go preach God's word when they're shooting down my ideas? Have a caffeine headache, and <sighs> I'm going to keep on going. I just had to catch my thoughts there, but it's like, Man, that's, that's uh, unfortunate because coffee does contain a, an anointing. It's a false anointing, <laughs> but it is an anointing nonetheless. And so then I'm tired. I come back to Trunk or Treat, and I get hungry in the middle of the night, eat a bunch of my kids' candy that they get, wake up with a sugar hangover. And, and then I check my email, which I never do on Mondays because it's my Sabbath, but I do. And then someone didn't like my intro. Someone else has complained about my socks. I'm like, I'm done with this. I'm done. This is too much. Been doing this for too many years. And so I decide I'm free. I'm free to do whatever. I'm king, not over much, but at least over myself. I'm going to do what I want. And so I'm like, I like being resourced by Sojourn, but I'm not going to go into the office anymore. No more office hours, oversight, filling out, performance reviews, all this stuff. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And then at home with my family, I'm like, I'm tired of having to stay within the constraints of a budget. So legalistic. If you don't have money, you don't spend it. <laughs> That's not the American way. And so I'm like, I have never had a new vehicle. I have a sufficient vehicle, but I'm going to go look at some new cars. I check out two, and it's like, yep, I'm going to pull the trigger on both of them, and I bring them home. (laughs) And did the dismay of my family. It's like, hey, I don't think we can do this. And then also I found out about a poker game that meets in our neighborhood midnight every night. It's like, hey, that's how I'll get the money back. And my wife says, hey, that's not going to be good for your health or for our family. And so, yeah, it doesn't matter. And in that example, I'm choosing to do something there. I'm choosing to do what I want, at least in those fleshly ways. But what is hindered in those things? It's going to be relationship. My relationship with Sojourn as my employer will cease paying me and... Mortgage on the house comes, could lose the house. It's a, it's a severing of relationship, friendships that I've built over the last 15 years. Those laws, those rules yield a lot of blessings for me that I'm able to get paid, I'm able to do what I'm called to do. And in my family, the constraints of our budget, me being present as, as I can, is, those are yielding blessings. And I can either choose those blessings and living under those constraints, those laws, or I can choose to damage or just chunk those to the side. And as we've been looking through Galatians, we've been talking about what is law, and it's a very complex um, issue. Many books have been written, and we're just going to look at a little snippet here today and what Christ accomplished on the cross in regards to the law. 
But as we look at it, we see that even as Moses quotes from Deuteronomy in this passage, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. We look through Deuteronomy and it's got a lot of laws, a lot of rules, a lot of regulations. But what I want us to keep in mind is, is part of that is a relational context of a covenant. This is what God says. If you do these things, you'll be blessed. If you do these things, you'll be cursed. And even at the end of uh, Deuteronomy in chapter 28, verse 9, Moses says this, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself. As he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord, your God and walk in his ways. And so there's curses and there's blessings, but it's a covenantal relationship that we see going on here. And it says, stay in these ways and you'll be in blessing. And as we look at it and we think about it, we know that relationships are like that. And here comes the, the tragic problem the Israelites couldn't stay in those ways. They wouldn't. They rebelled. And we see that throughout all humanity, every human being who's ever lived has rebelled against God, committed cosmic treason. And when we find ourselves in our own human understanding as believers and we're saying, well, you say this is what Christ has done, but it can't be, there's got to be, we got to set up some more boundaries over here. And so we can do that but there's no life in that. Or we can chunk them all to the side and come over here to license, to cheap grace, whatever we want to do, and we're doing all this stuff, and it's like, that doesn't bring life or freedom either. And so we've been looking through, and Kevin said last week as he continue, continued the sermon series that the greatest threat against the freedom that Christ has purchased for us is in the church, is rules-based religion. And we want to continue to think about that, continue to keep that as the context and over the last 11 years, pastoring here at Sojourn, I've preached many, many times. And I, it's interesting, I was telling Ginger yesterday that I felt like in this sermon, like there's nothing that was really new. There were some nuances that tweaked and shone a light on different things. But for whatever reason, in God's grace, this preparation did some huge things in my soul this week. And I've been praying for us that whether it's tiredness or lack of coffee, whatever it may be, that God in his grace would shine a light in our hearts and allow these realities to drive themselves deeper in, to expose things that we're trusting in, to see where we're not living in freedom, and to leave this place today and be more free and living more deeply in the reality of what Christ has done. So here's three points. We'll jump into the first one. First point is the desolation of the curse. And in this point, I want to think about what is the curse and what is a curse and what does this mean? And just thinking about uh, Halloween, there's a lot of uh, scary movies on and a lot of movies that you shouldn't watch, not because they're about that topic, but because they're just bad, you know, <laughs> most... most uh, Halloween movies seem to be bad, but uh, thinking about curses, it's like when we think about curse, we think about witches and warlocks and casting spells and all these different things, but let's kind of remove that from our imagination and think about what the scriptures are see, teaching us about the, uh, the curse uh, that is on us. Verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. 
Now it is evident, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. It's evident. We don't have to consult, but I mean, it's just, it's evident. And as we track through, as, as Paul uses arguments from the Old Testament, as we go back in order to move forward, we'll be reminded of this. Because thinking about the curse and the timeline, the first time we see this in human history is with Adam and Eve. Disobedience leads to a curse. And even in that curse, we see a blessing. Because we see the blessing of, first of all, thinking like, guys, you, you have lived life with me under my blessing and now you've rebelled against me and followed your own way. You put yourself in the place of God. And she, the, the, the statement was, because of this, you will surely die. And there was an immediate physical death, but death would be impending. But there was immediate spiritual death. There was a separation from God and that relationship that was beautiful and very good in the beginning. And so thorns and thistles, it's gonna be hard work, childbearing, the, the, these curses and all the things that you think we would find satisfaction in this life with. God says from the very beginning, you won't find satisfaction in those. I won't let you because you weren't created to find satisfaction in earthly things. You're created only to find satisfaction in me. And we see the promise, the proto-evangelism, the very first promise of the coming of Christ in Genesis 3, where the promise to Eve is that her seed would come. And we see this pronounced through scripture that Christ came and bore our sin on the cross, crushing Satan under his foot. But we think about Adam and Eve in this curse and then living in a fallen world. We see over and over again how the blessings and how the curses play out. We see Noah receives this message from God. The whole world is living as they want to. Noah and his family blessed. They're saved, obedience through the cross. It is symbol of the cross through the ark. And uh, I missaid that, but it made sense, didn't it? So we'll keep on going. So they pass through the waters of judgment safely. And that's what a symbol of baptism is as well. And then everyone else under the curse, separation from God, death. We think about the Tower of Babel and we could talk about that for a long time. But when Abraham pops up on the scene, Remember, once again, it's God who pursues him. It's God who calls him. It's God who speaks. Even reading through the covenant again this week, God makes Abraham fall asleep. And God is the one who walks between the cut animals and the sacrifices because he's saying, I'm making this covenant. And the covenant was mind-boggling to Abraham. He said, I am gonna give you a land. This land will be promised to you. He says, I'm gonna give you descendants and he's an old man by now. Doesn't have a son, doesn't have an heir. I'm gonna make your descendants as many as the stars, sand on the seashore. And through your descendant, all peoples will be blessed. He's like, whoa, what? How's that gonna happen? But we see in Hebrews 11, he was justified by faith. He believed God. Was he perfect? No, he messed up right and left all along the way. But he believed. He believed. Then some 400 plus years later, Moses leads the people out of Egypt and the written law is given. And the thing about Abraham and Moses, one had the written law, one did not, but they were both called friends of God. They both longed to see God, to know God. They listened to his words. 
They were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they were justified by faith. We think about this story going on and on. And so by the time Jesus busts onto the scene, 1400 years, something after Moses, and there's been 400 years of silence and he starts reading from the scriptures, taking the scrolls out from the Old Testament, reading from Isaiah, the prophecies, 700 years before him that were applying to him. He came to bind up the brokenhearted. The blind will see, the lame will walk. And he's fulfilling these things. And so whether it's before the law was given in written form, or whether there were Gentile people out who hadn't heard the message yet, we know that God has given us the law. Paul puts it like this in Romans 2. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse. And so everyone who's ever lived, we've had the law written on our hearts. And then the written law is given. And as Paul's writing to the Galatian church, we have Jews and Gentiles present. Gentiles had the law written on their heart, but now they have the written law too. And they've come together. Now, both Jews and Gentiles in the churches in Galatia have given their life to this belief in Christ. And then that's when the false teachers came in and they said, no, 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 it's not just this. It's this plus this. It's Jesus plus these laws. And I was reading some Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers this past week. I hang out with him sometime. Sometimes he's been dead for a while, but uh, I just hang out with his sermons. And he put it like this. He said, the law can be a servant, but if it's your master, it'll crush you. It can be a servant. It can show you the perfection of God. It can show you God's heart for how he longs for people to live in community, that they'd take care of orphans and widows, that they would lovingly embrace each other. We see Jesus says the whole law, the prophets are summarized in the statement, love God with all you got, love your neighbor as yourself. And we see Jesus also internalizing the law, saying like, if, if you lust, you've committed adultery in your, in your heart, it's not just external actions. If you've hated unjustly, this is, this is gonna be murder. And if you've disobeyed one part of the law, you're guilty of it all. And so we're put under this crushing load that it's like, no, we can't do that. We're crushed under the weight of the law. And remembering that the law isn't just external, it is a matter of the heart and it is a matter of relationship. And in this case, we cannot have a relationship with God. We can't. We trample on the very things that are important to God. We trample on the things that he calls us to do by nature and by choice. If at the heart of the law is this relationship, when we trample on those laws, there are consequences and that we've known and we've talked over and over. And this is the bad part before the better part. And the good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. And the bad news is the worst you could believe. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. We're enemies of God. But Christ came. And that leads us to point two. Christ came. 
And the second point is, it's the finished work of the cross. And I remember as I was thinking this week, doing a counseling session some years ago when I was campus pastor at, at Midtown, someone sitting and they said, they, they've been wrestling with so many different things about life with God and about circumstances in their life. But some, in between one of the songs, the liturgy that we do, one of the phrases that we use sometimes is the finished work of the cross, finished work of the cross. And God's spirit just burned that into their hearts and they came in and that's all they could talk about in the counseling session. It's like, the work of the cross is finished for me. It's finished. And as we continue, even though there may not be new content, maybe for some of you, this is the first time you've heard such a message. My prayer is that we will always go deeper, that the Holy Spirit will drive this deeper into our hearts and that it will be applied to our lives and we'll see our lives growing in more freedom. Verse 13, what happened on the cross? Well, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Remember in these ancient times, the cross before Jesus, nobody's wearing it around their necks. Be like us wearing a guillotine or something around our necks and be like, ah, you're goth. Yeah, makes sense. But it's like, that was not a symbol of victory and freedom. It was a symbol of loss. You lose, you're cut off, you're defeated. And in Bible times, before that, when you were excommunicated from the community, you were cut off from the family of God and from the temple where they worship. In extreme cases, those who were put to death were sometimes hanged on a tree or impaled, and that was a sign of, of shame and dishonor that they'd been rejected. They weren't able to be taken off and buried with their family and their family plot. They've been rejected and separated from everything. They're cursed. And here in this passage, and, and some commentators and Christians become uneasy with this, this idea that, that um, this truth that Paul puts forth is Jesus became a curse. Jesus became a curse. And many want to say, well, he took our punishment. That's all that means. But as we continue to see, it's going to mean more than that. The two places in the epistles that are most clear explicitly about what took place, what transpired on the cross are this passage and 2 Corinthians 5.21, where, where Paul writes, God made him Jesus. God made him Jesus. I'll do it in the translation that's in my notes. I was going on and off the NASB there. So this is 2 Corinthians 5.21 in the ESV. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus sin. He knew no sin. Jesus became sin. Jesus became a curse. And it reminds us back in Genesis 2.17, before Adam and Eve had fallen, this command to Adam, don't eat of this, this tree. Because when you do, in that day you'll surely die. And it is a spiritual death as well, that physical death. And the spiritual death is separation. And rebelling against God has put us in that place, separation from God. Separating us from that relationship with the life-giving creator of all things who says, I love you, I have what's best for you, I have eternity for you. 
And when we look at this, Jesus becoming a curse, Jesus becoming sin, and in our ears echo the, the truth that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And if you do this, you'll surely die. And that death has to be paid for. And so as we think about the cross and we think about what transpired, let's think about just a few things that this reminds us of. The first thing is that Jesus was punished for our sins. He was punished for our sins. That's true. But it's gonna go beyond that. We see his punishment and we can also vividly see the punishment that should have been ours. And being reminded of this week, this is where I really slowed down and just kind of stuck in my gut in a deeper and fresh way. And even in reflecting on it, it's like, Lord, does this affect me more? Maybe because I love you more. Maybe because I have more hardships in life. Maybe because I'm tired or weaker. Because this scene of, of Jesus about to march to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane when he takes Peter and the sons of Zebedee with him. And he says, stay awake and pray, and they can only fall asleep. And he says, my soul is, is so filled with sorrow unto death. And he sweats droplets of blood or, or sweat that is like blood. And he is in anguish. And the holes that would come to his hands on the cross, the stripes on his back, the labored breathing was horrendous, horrible. But it could not touch the true suffering of what was about to take place. Because our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect unity, perfect unity forever, God sends his son and Jesus, the God-man, God with flesh on, works, walks in perfect unity with the Father. He hears the Father and does what the Father says. He's without sin. He knew no sin. He knows that on the cross, as he bears this punishment that is ours, as he becomes a curse, as he becomes a sin, for the first time ever in all eternity, that he would be separated from the Father. The Father would turn his face away. And it wasn't the holes in his hands that he was consumed with, but the hole in his heart. Because we all know what it's like when someone says, I hate you. And if it's just a coworker, it can hurt. But if it's your dearest friend, it hurts deeply. If it's your parents or your spouse, it can wreck your life. And here's God the Son being separated from God the Father. And I can just imagine the anguish and just his heart exploding, just how horrible that was. And thinking about the essence of what is hell, hell is separation from God and his manifested presence, separation from the relationship that brings life and goodness and Jesus walked through that hell for us so that we wouldn't have to. And he's not just punished for our sin, which he is, but he becomes sin so that something can transact on the cross. So there's a transaction. Just as he bore the curse, he was treated like every sinner who ever lived. If this is true, Jesus became the curse what was spoken to me, what should be spoken to me, me declared guilty, rebel, 
deserving of death, physical, spiritual death for all eternity, that was placed on Jesus. And as we read in 2 Corinthians 5, that righteousness that was Jesus is placed on me. It's placed on you. And the Spirit guarantees this. The get the Spirit, the promise of the gift, the blessing that the same Spirit that descended when Jesus was baptized, saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, descends on us, sons and daughters. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. They're made legally right with me. And that legal notion flows from God's love. We are safe. We are held. This quote is in your notes from John Stott in The Cross of Christ. Great, great quote. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. I'm going to be in God's place. I'm going to do what I do. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. And this is what transpires on the cross. If Jesus were just an example, of course we're all going to fall short. Jesus is an example, how to abide with the Father, how to love what we long to become more like and what God is working in us. But he is a substitute for us so that we can be made like Christ. And I heard Nora Allison say this this past week in discipleship school. She said, Jesus, how did he do his ministry here on earth? He said, she said, well, he, he told stories and asked questions. So I'm going to tell you a story. I wrote a parable to hopefully drive this thought in a little more for us here today. And all earthly examples fall short, but this is what came to mind. I, just in your mind's eye, if you can imagine being born into a kingdom in ancient times, and you're a foreigner in this land, and you have no rights, and there's a king and a kingdom, you hear good things about the king, where all the citizens are well-fed and taken care of, and you're a foreigner and you're, you're just embittered in your soul because you, you don't have a warm place to sleep, you don't have food to eat, so in order to survive, you just start stealing. And as you grow older, you find friends, quote-unquote friends, other people who have the same interest as stealing, and it becomes more and more brazen, breaking into people's houses. Someone confronts you, you end up killing someone. And you just get more and more bitter, and you decide with your friends, hey, we're going to rebel against the king, and we're going to overthrow his kingdom. And so this goes on for a while, and one day you're caught, and you're arrested, you're taken to a dark dungeon, and you're sitting there waiting execution. And then a representative of the king comes in, and this representative says, I have news for you. The king has had compassion on you. The king's son has had great compassion on you as well. And the king's son has decided to take your place in, in your execution. You're like, this is crazy. This is a trick. They must do this just psychological mumbo jumbo. But then after some moments, they open the door and they say, you're free to go. You're free to go. And you kind of tentatively walk out and you look and you see like all this crazy stuff going on and you just 
walk out. Go back to the woods where you were and maybe that love that was shown you affects you to be changed. Maybe not. But you go back to the woods, the same cold life you had before, begging for food, foreigner, no rights. So that's the first half of the parable. And I stop right there just to note that many of us functionally live the Christian life like that. You've been forgiven, you're free to go. Now this love better affect you, so here's the list of things to do. Let's try it, let's go, let's go. But we live like orphans. So let me rewind the parable just a little bit. You're in the dungeon, same scenario leading up to it. Representative the king comes in and says, have good news for you. Compassion, compassion, the son is taking your place. And this is what the king is doing. The king has had such compassion on you that he is adopting you legally into his family. The king is adopting you in as his son. You will eat with the king, you'll live with the king, you'll party with the king, rejoice with the king, you'll learn how to run the kingdom. Everything he has will be yours. And you're like, no way. But they march you into the king's presence and they clean you up and they put the son's robe on you. They put the son's ring on your finger. And the king with compassion says, you were lost, but now you're found. You're a foreigner in exile, but now you're my son. All of this you see is yours. I will teach you. And it blows you away. And there are parts of you that say, no, I don't believe this. And as the year goes on, the first year, you find yourself at times wandering through the woods where you used to wander, sleeping in the old shack you used to sleep in. It had no heat. You're freezing and you're hungry. And there's an invitation to come back. And you come back. And the father sees you and runs to you and says, come on back. This is yours. Live with me. Stay warm by my fire. Eat with me. See my face, that there is love, that you are my child. And I believe that so much in life is wrapped up in, in the thought that we're punished, or that Jesus was punished for us, and now we do the best we can. Even when we understand theologically substitutionary atonement and, and theologically in our minds, but functionally in our lives, there's a blockade that God is is, is breaking through and saying, my child, my child, come, come. It's not, you're free to go. It's like, no, you're free to come. You are mine. No one can take you from my hand. If we go back to 2 Corinthians passage before verse 21, for the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. And he who died for all, I'm sorry, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, putting themselves in the place of God, being miserable, filling themselves up, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The meaning of life, the flourishing life, 
The fruit of that life is love, peace that passes understanding, joy. In a tumultuous world where people in a synagogue aren't safe, our heart breaks that there's violence like that. But God says, I meet you in the midst of all this suffering. He is the God who suffered more than we can ever dream or imagine. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. New creation. The old has passed away. The new has come now. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this leads us to the third point. What is the glorious blessing and invitation? It's this invitation to rest in this, to live in this, to drink it daily because we are a forgetful people. I used to forget my lunch all the time and be hungry. And so I found a way by putting my car keys on my lunch in the fridge and then I wouldn't forget my lunch. But I'd be walking around the morning thinking, where are my car keys? (laughs) We're forgetful people not just with lunch and car keys, but with spiritual truths. Because in reality, they fight against everything that this kingdom would tell you, this kingdom of the earth, that is. You're not loved, you're not special, you're like, whatever. And we read Zephaniah 3, 14 to 17, and contained in those verses is that he sings over us songs of joy with delight. He delights over his children. He's a mighty warrior to save. This is our God. He binds up the brokenhearted. He suffered for us. And just even think about it with a friend yesterday, thinking of Jesus on the cross, thinking about all that he is bearing and the heart of God shines forth. Forgive them for they know not what they do. John, take care of my mom. She's your mother. And to a thief who deserved death, the thief is so taken back and stops throwing insults. He, He sees Jesus and he's like, you don't deserve this. When you enter your kingdom, will you remember me? Remember me? And Jesus the heart of God on full exhibit says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The heart of our Abba. He didn't even have a chance to get baptized. What's up with that? The heart of our Abba. You believe, you need to believe. You're with me. So I think about the blessing. I think about how this Galatians 2.20 has been one of the top 10 New Testament verses. If you listen to the top 10 Bible charts on the weekend, this has been in the top 10 for like 1,930 years. It got bumped to 11 somewhere in the dark ages. That's not funny, but I'm saying that stuff anyway. Hey, Galatians 2.20, ringing true. I have been 
I have been, past tense, crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I now live like right now. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, who loved me and gave himself for me. From the Bible's point of view, the central issue is the relationship with God that was severed has now been brought back together. And how can we as humans be justified to walk before God without fear, guilt, or shame, to live in authenticity, to know he knows everything about us, but to look into his eyes and know that we are fully accepted, fully loved because of the work of the cross, the finished work of the cross. You add nothing to it. The promised sign of the blessing that we receive spirit through faith. The work of the cross is finished. And just a few thoughts here here to close. Thinking about how this applies to our lives and thinking once again, Lord, what do you want to drive deeper into my heart? Because there are times in our lives of suffering, times of dismay, times where we feel like literally we're under a curse. And I, was, I didn't plan to share this this morning, but it came out, so I'll share it again. But uh, a lot of uh, sojourners have uh, been discovering they have autoimmune diseases, and so some people have these physical ailments. And I've had one for a decade now, and the last three months have been really br- brutal physically. And I was telling Ginger on Thursday night, like, it was so, so tired and you know how your mind plays tricks on you sometime when you're so tired. And my mind was just going through. It's like, I'm about to go to sleep and my body's just going to shut down and I'm done. And it's like, I, I don't fear death, I guess, but I don't want to leave my family. And so these thoughts are going through and then they catch on to other thoughts of like, Lord, is it because I'm not following in enough faith? Well, I know my theology of suffering, Paul had thorns in the flesh. It's not a correlation to that. Lord, and just in despair, just like, Lord, how, how is this your plan? That in this season, I function at 30% and can do my work and then go home and be like a couch potato trying to engage and talk with my kids, doing the best I can. And it's, it's really hard not to just taste despair and sit there. But even in thinking about it and praying and just, Lord, what is bringing it before brothers? It just like, Chad, what is God doing in your heart in this season? And I started thinking about, man, he's unearthing some things from my childhood and other things that I'm processing through with a dear brother. He's taking things that I've been bound with and and setting me free a little bit more, having a vision for that. And just to come to the realization, Lord, you've got me. You know what you're doing. And I'm not under a curse. I am set free. And you've got me and you know what's best, Father. And I want to submit to that. And I hope and I long for healing. Pray for it. But Lord, what's your way? I want to be my way. And you haven't left me. You know what you're doing. 
and this is our God. How does that apply to your life today? When you feel like you're in despair, when you feel like there's no way that God could love me. Because I look at a passage in John 17, high priestly prayer, Jesus is about to march to the cross. He's telling his disciples all amazing things. And then he, he lets them hear this prayer. And in verse 20 of John 17, he says, I do not ask for these only, for his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, which is extension us. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. And this is the phrase I got stuck on again this week. And love them even as you loved me. You loved your people. You love Jess. You love Todd. You love Stephen. You love Emily. God, you love them as you love me. It's like, what? Oh, there's gotta, I got to bring that down a little bit. Can't, can't be. Lord, you, it's like, submit to my word, child. The love I have for my beloved son, I have for you. Perfect love. Overwhelming love. Unquenchable love. Forever love. But I'm so sad. I have so much doubt. Unstoppable love. Your fears, your doubts, your insecurities, your shame cannot touch that love. He says, welcome, my child. I've known everything about you before you were born. Every doubt you'd ever have, every sin you'd ever commit, every sin you will commit. And I chose you. I chose you because I was delighted to. You are my child. And we rest in the finished work of Christ. Brothers and sisters, you have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. The life you now live, live by faith in the Son of God. Live by faith in the Son of God. He loves you, and he gave himself for you. And he gave us a sacred symbol that we remember week after week, that his body was broken on the cross, that he became a curse, he became sin for us. After supper, he takes a cup of wine and says, this cup, Sealed by my blood. It's a new covenant. It's promised long ago to the prophets, to Jeremiah, through Isaiah 53. That I'm coming and I've come and I have set my face like flint to accomplish what God has called me to. And here we go. Life with me, now and forevermore. If you are a believer here today, I'd encourage you to reflect to break off a piece of the bread, dip it into juice or wine, whatever your conscience permits. And ask yourself, Lord, how am I not resting in your work? And I asked the first service, I'd ask you, there's freedom. Like I find myself at times when I break off the bread, dip it, 
that from my mouth comes the word. Thank you, Jesus. I'd encourage you, if you want to, as you come up and the music will be playing, just to hold that and say, thank you, Jesus, and partake in communion. And that thank you, thank you for absorbing the curse for me, for becoming sin for me, for adopting me into your family. Thank you, Jesus, that you have set me free. And if you're not a Christian, scriptures teach against you partaking in communion. But hear this invitation, this Jesus next to the thief on the cross, next to this little boy born in Oklahoma in poverty. Look to me. Oh, he's going to have social anxiety. He's going to be sick. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, he picked me. Is he calling you? Come, don't delay. Don't delay. He is gracious and he has blessings. Blessings upon blessings for you. Let's pray together.